0: Before I begin, I'd like to share a word of gratitude from the community at Asbury for your willingness to be in prayer and support of the mission of Asbury. As some of you know, or maybe all of you know, Asbury was a church in decline and was very close to shutting its doors for good. And as the Lord often does, He makes a way where there seems to be no way. And because of the partnership, because of the merger with Alamo Heights, Asbury has new hope. There's encouragement. People are excited. And we can see tangible and intangible change taking place at Asbury. And a lot of it is because of your willingness to be in support of Asbury. And so for that, I say thank you. Paul writes in Galatians that we should not grow weary in doing good. For as often as we have the opportunity, do good. For in due season, you will reap a harvest. So do good as often as you have the opportunity, and especially to the household of faith. So again, I say thank you for your willingness To do good. Well, this morning at the 830 service, David made sure he pulled me aside and he said, now we need to be done by 920. That's code for keep your sermon short. And then at the 930 service before he left, he said they they, they need to be done by 1030. You can lengthen it a little bit, but not much. I said, what about the 11 o'clock service? He says, oh, these are the people that don't like to go home. So you preach as long as you want. Good news. It's been 10 years since I've had to preach three sermons, so I'm a little tired. And we had time change, so I'm even more tired. But I am here to hopefully share some good news. I don't know if you realize this, but, but all, of the, all of the campuses, the Asbury, Alamo Heights, Riverside, and even New Heights, we all go over the same passage every week. We all use the same passage in, in worship. And, and so we, we get together and we study the passage and we bring to the table what, what, what's in our hearts and, and what we've studied and, and we prepare together. doesn't mean we preach the same thing, but we prepare together. And it's it's a blessing for me to be in that group with these pastors and, and the, the ones at the other campuses because I learn so much. And I, and I take what I learn, and hopefully I offer just a little bit, but I learn. And one of the things I learned this week was that the Amalekites, for lack of a better word, were some bad dudes. They were a really an evil group of people. Uh, In today's language, we would consider them to be human traffickers. They would kidnap, rob, and steal people, and then sell them into slavery. Now, if you remember, the Israelites... We're just released from the bondage of slavery. If we look, look back, we've been on this journey together with you through the Exodus. So we know that just a while back ago in our services, we were talking about when the Israelites were freed. When they left Egypt. When they plundered and took the plunder of Egypt. and As they were armed for battle as they proceeded out. And if you'll remember, when they left Egypt... They took a route that for me didn't seem very logical. Here is this group of people, this nation, if you will, that's not going to take the route by the sea where there's water, where there's food, but God is going to take them through the desert road. I don't know about you, but thinking about the desert makes me thirsty. And so God takes them through the desert road. And one of the reasons that God does this, if you read back in that part of the Scripture, is that God knows that if they go through the route by the sea, there might be the chance, the possibility, that they would come upon that great Philistine army. A mighty army. A vicious army. And God, knowing His people the way He does, says, if they come upon them, they're going to be tempted to turn around and flee back into bondage. Back to the oppressors. Back to Egypt. And so he says, I'll take them a different route. Again, I I wouldn't have chosen that route. It sounds kind of rough. But that's where God takes them. And I'm surprised that God takes him that way because he knows his people very well. One of the things that I take out of Scripture when I read Exodus is that these group of people that leave Egypt who are freed and liberated and are walking with God are a bunch of whiners. We read it over and over again where where things get a little rough, and and what do they do? Oh, Moses, why did you bring us out here? Oh, Moses, it's so rough. There's no water. There's no food. We had food and, and water in Egypt. It was, yeah, we were slaves, but it was okay. But now you brought us out here to the desert to die. And so they're a bunch of whiners, and I've been very critical of them over the years. How can they whine when God is doing so much? Don't they see what God is doing? And It didn't take long for me to say that and look in the mirror and say, oh, I'm the same way. I whine just as much sometimes. But not only are they whiners, they're also very observant. They also watch and see what God is doing. They know that God is with them, even though they whine and complain at times. They can see the hand of God directing them, leading them. They know that God had provided a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead them out. They all witnessed when Moses stood up with the rod of God and and parted the sea so that they could cross. They saw the waters come over the army of Pharaoh and destroy it. They saw God provide water from a bitter pond with a piece of wood. The message that Sunday was, maybe you need the piece of wood that God throws into the bitter pond to make something sweet for somebody else. But they saw that. They saw God send down manna from heaven. And quail upon the ground. And so even though they whine, they see. They're whiny, but not dummies. They know that God is with them. And so when Moses tells Joshua, as these Amalekites come to attack... Now remember, these are a bunch of slaves who were recently released, who are not a battle-tested army. They're not warriors, even though they're armed for war. They're not warriors. These are former slaves. But when God tells, when Moses tells Joshua, to choose some men and to go fight the Amalekites, and I will stand up on a hill and raise my hand. And as I raise my hands, we will have victory. They know that Moses doesn't have the power. He doesn't have magic. What they know is that God is with them. And that as Moses raises his hands to heaven, God will lead them. And because of that, they're, they're encouraged. They're hopeful. They're hopeful knowing that God goes before them. They have hope. And sure enough, as Moses raises his hands, the battle turns their way. And as long as Moses has his hands up, they're winning. Moses gets tired and puts down his hands. And they lose hope. And the Amalekites start to win. And so Aaron and her get a little smart and say, hey, you know what, if we hold up his hands for him, he'll never put them down. And so that's what they do. And so the Scripture tells us that with Moses' hands raised, Joshua and his ragtag army defeat the mighty Amalekites. And it's that hope, that hope that they have, because of what they've seen, because of what they've experienced, that encourages them to fight on, to move forward, and to be victorious. I pray that that's what we're offering at Asbury, is hope and encouragement for a community that needs to hear about that hope and encouragement, that needs to receive the hope and encouragement that comes from, from knowing Jesus and, and serving God. As we build relationships one at a time, my prayer is that that we're sharing that message of hope. I know that you've got that message of hope. I know that the message of hope has been shared here. And I pray that you're taking that message and living it. And as children, as brothers and sisters, as heirs and co-heirs with Christ, that you're taking the hope that you receive and that you go forward some way, somehow, somewhere and share it with someone else. To make a difference. I grew up here in San Antonio. And uh, growing up, I was either at the church. I grew up in church. uh, At Principe de Paz. On Brady and Couples on the west side of San Antonio. And So I was either at church. Mom was going to make sure I was at church. Sometimes kicking and screaming, but I was there. Or I was on the baseball field. Started playing baseball when I was about four and a half and didn't stop until well into my mid-twenties. Now I see the look. I know. I see it. I've gotten it before. Nah, you didn't play baseball. I'm telling you, this wasn't always here. It's, it's a new fairly new occurrence. It'll be gone someday. So I was either on the baseball field or I was at a church event. And I bonded with friends. I had friends that, that were great friends that either were from church or from the field. We were like brothers. And I had two friends in particular named Ralph. They weren't my only friends. I had more, but these were my two good friends, both of them named Ralph. And as we moved on into high school, Ralph C., my friend from church, moved away. His dad was a pastor, so they moved to El Paso. And so I didn't get to see Ralph as much. I'd talk to him on the phone. didn't have cell phones then, so, I mean, it was a short short talk. Mom was always there. Hey, how long How long have you been on the phone? Not too long, not too long. You didn't have the unlimited minutes that you have now. I love unlimited minutes. But I would talk to him, and, and I would see him on a regular basis at our annual youth camp in Sacramento, New Mexico. If you've ever been to the mountains of Sacramento, it's beautiful. And so I would see him regularly during those high school years. Ralph, from, from baseball, once we got to high school, decided he didn't want to play baseball anymore. And so he started hanging with a different group and didn't really see him as much every once in a while. But we'd still talk. We were still pretty tight, and we'd we'd get along. But it really wasn't the same. Well, the summer between my junior and senior year, we got the news that Rousey C. had bone cancer. So I really didn't know how what that meant or how that was going to affect him. I just knew it wasn't good. I was 17 years old. I mean, don't know much at 48. I didn't know anything at 17. And so as we go to youth camp that year, getting off the bus, I see Ralph standing in the distance over by the chapel on crutches because he had had one of his legs amputated by that time. Smiling as big as he's always smiled. Holding court, people around him just laughing and, and wanting to be in, in his presence because he was just so filled with, with hope and, and, and life and joy and that peace that surpasses all understanding. In spite of what was going on physically in his body, Ralph had a joy that just flowed from him. And so as I approached him and I went up to him and hugged him, as I usually did, I didn't know what else to say other than say, Ralph, we're praying for you. We know you're going to beat this. We know you're going to be healed. And things are going to be like normal. Ralph embraced me and looked at me and said, I've already been healed. I've already got the victory. and Things are beyond normal. What I need for you to do is pray that I would live out my days fulfilling the will of God as it applies to my life. Powerful words from a 17-year-old. Thirty years later, Ralph's words still impact me, still influence me, still move me. Because here was a young man that in spite of what he was going through, in spite of, of, of the trials and tribulations of his life, his peace and his joy was permanently based on Jesus Christ. And the hope that he had was infectious. And others caught it. He encouraged so many because he had hope. Shortly after I returned home, before school started for our senior year, I received a call that my friend Ralph from baseball committed suicide. You see, Ralph had gone a different road not only did he start using but started dealing drugs he was distant from all his other friends he he was distant from his family he owed money to so many people his girlfriend couldn't take his lifestyle and left and Ralph was broken and in despair and in so much pain. And so he felt the only recourse, the only thing that he could do to stop the pain was to end his life. I still remember walking into Roy Acre's funeral home that day. And as his father was greeting the people that were passing by, giving him his condolences, his father, being a really big man, threw himself on me and cried and sobbed for what seemed like hours. And the only thing I can think is that I was a memory, a reminder of a simpler, more innocent time. Thirty years later, Ralph's suicide still impacts me. How could it be that a young person with so much to offer, would give up. Ralph, my baseball friend, had no hope. He had no one to encourage him that things could be better. And so I pray that the ministry at Asbury is one of hope and encouragement so that as we reach out into the community, we can let people know that there is a better way. We can let people know that there is a hope. We can let people know that there is a reason that God has placed us here and that God wants to use us and that God wants to bless us. Hope goes a long way. And so this morning, I want to encourage you. I want to beseech you. I would even beg of you. Live a life of hope that will impact others. Take the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And go out and live it. And if necessary, use words. I told you that I was a whiner. I'm trying to break my habit of whining. It's coming a little slow, but... This morning... I had one of these things on, and I broke it. I think I'm breaking this one. That's why they gave me this. And I told Diana, I said, the only reason I'm breaking them is because I don't have one at, at Asbury. And if I can not have one, no one can. So I'm just going to go through here and break them all. I used to work for the Texas Department of Human Services from 1990 to 1997. And if you've ever been in state bureaucracy, then that explains a lot of who I am. How I operate. And one day I was having a very big, important party. For one, for me, it's called a pity party. Raise your hands if you've ever had a pity party. Oh, good, I'm not the only one. And so I was having this pity party, feeling sorry for myself, not liking where my life was at, not liking what I was doing, not liking what the money I was making, just complaining, whining, why, God. And so I decided to go to, to work that day with a, with a bad attitude. And, and I come across a young man who was going through some difficult times. And as I talk to him and find out more about why, why he's there, he's got this smile on his face. Oh, that's a horrible thing to do when somebody's having a pity party to come into my office smiling. How dare he? But as he shares with me his situation and what's going on in his life, the Lord starts to move and speak to me. You see, Martin had just lost his workman's comp because he had been out of work for a long time. Uh, and, And it wasn't because he got hurt on the job. It was because he had renal failure and needed a kidney transplant. And so now he had no money. He had no insurance. His young family had just bought a house. They were getting ready to lose the house. They were getting ready to lose the car. Uh, everything was upside down. He had no food, nothing. But he's smiling, filled with peace. And so I asked Martin, how is it that you can be so happy? How is it that you can you can have this smile in spite of everything going on? And Martin looks at me and says, They can take away my job. They can take away my car. They can medically bankrupt me. They can take this kidney if my body rejects it. But, Robert, they'll never, ever be able to take away my Jesus. And my Jesus gives me hope. Needless to say, I was convicted, repented, cried, And Martin prayed over me. Dear friends, live into the hope and be the encourager that God has called you to. Amen.